0: While the choir finds their seats, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for being a faithful God on whose promises we can indeed stand. For you are indeed so beautiful, and you create in us because of your love and faithfulness the longing to indeed not be satisfied until we find you. Father, I pray for the message this morning both in song and now in word, Father, I pray that it would unite us rather than divide. Father, we love you, and we ask this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Or in some parts, is it of the Midwest? They say, how are yous? Or in the deep south, how are y'all, or all y'all, right, for the plural? Y'all is singular, all y'all is plural. Did you know that? I'd like to start this morning right off the top um, with showing you something and see what you think. Take a look. He's coming back for his church. The Bible says in Matthew... Chapter 24, verse 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. I want you to know, church, that Jesus Christ could come this month. Or he might come next week. Or he could even come... questions all right wow i mean if that doesn't get your attention at least i'm not sure what will i've seen that thing many times before and the more i see it the more i have to kind of look away even though i know it's coming It bang it makes me i jumped again for real this morning it scares the wits out of me what do you think how does it make you feel is that how it's going to happen one day Okay, and I'm warning you, that video is about as exciting as the sermon's going to get this morning. So <laughs> I blew my whole thing right up front. So. Well, that video at least is one interpretation, anyway, of what, of what many Christians refer to as the rapture. And I'm curious, just by a show of hands, um, how many of you have at least heard of that term, that concept, that word? the rapture, at least in a Christian context. How many of you? Yeah, see, almost everyone. It's not surprising it's one of the most talked about end times events and um, something I'd like to talk a little bit about with you this morning. Please turn to your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. First Thessalonians chapter four, specifically verses thirteen through eighteen. Now this week and next, I'd like to take a brief a brief look with you at end times. Now, we're not attempting any comprehensive study of end times, not anything close. So my word for us to do that would make our multi-year series on Acts seem brief. Okay? Maybe someday, but for now, uh, just an overview of what the Bible says, at least on a couple of well-known, more popular things, Uh, a brief look on what the Bible says and maybe what it doesn't say uh, about end times. i wanted to do this with you for a while, uh, mainly because I'm hearing, uh, are you end times whispered more than usual during this time of worldwide economic collapse? And then, not too long ago, maybe you received it too. I'm curious. Not too long ago, I received one of those mass emails from who knows where, trying to convince me that President President Obama is the Antichrist. How many have you received those emails? No, yeah, a number of you did. Okay, who sent it? No, just kidding. Wow, what a statement! I thought and. And then there's more than usual rumblings, it seems, about Jesus' second coming, you know, really being any day now. And then there's always this feeling I get I just covered some end times thing in First Thessalonians with the students that I teach at Front Range Christian. And anytime I teach it with kids or adults, there's always this feeling I get whenever I talk with anyone about end times, there seems to be a lot of confusion. Out there as to what the Bible says or doesn't say about end times, and and many of you have asked me in the last six months, even, hey, when are we going to get to Revelation and end times? And my usual answer is something like, I'll preach on end times right before it's time for me to leave. I'm just kidding. I'm not going anywhere, but this, Lord willing, but this issue, unless I'm raptured away, I, you know, but. Uh, But this issue can be so divisive. And so I come up here today with that concern, that what I say might threaten our unity. I'm risking that a bit, and I'll tell you why a little bit later. But for whatever reasons, I thought we'd take a peek, at least, at end times and see where God's Spirit leads I'd like to start today with that rather infamous event that many refer to as the rapture. There is, as many of you I'm sure know, no small controversy surrounding the rapture. So I figured, why not, let's just wade right into the deep end of the pool. Your Bibles are open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'll begin reading at verse 13. Brothers, Paul writes, We do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, those who die, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own Word, we tell you that we who are still alive forever therefore encourage each other with these words these are the very words of god amen amen now you may have noticed that the word rapture isn't anywhere in that scripture in fact it never appears in the bible the word rapture is from the latin word rapio which means to snatch grab or carry off And so while the word doesn't appear in the Bible, it's a perfectly good word. Some theologian at some point in time gave this event, specifically in verse 17, the title, the rapture. The snatching or grabbing or carrying off of all of these Christians, dead or alive. The rapture is often used to describe what happens in verse 17. When Christians are caught up to meet the Lord in the air and to be with Him forever. When Jesus comes that day, Dead Christians will be raised from the dead, and they, together with all Christians alive at the time, will be all caught up together in the air to meet Jesus, and then will be with Jesus forever. Now, so far, on these things at least, Christians of every stripe, spot, and creed seem to agree. No controversy so far. But get ready for the deep end of the pool. It's right at or around this point of the rapture that the controversy begins, in earnest. And the disagreement is about what happens next, or stated a different way, about where exactly this forever together with Jesus will begin after we're all caught up in the air with Him. For over 1,800 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, Every church theologian I could find, including Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, and Calvin, to name but a few, on a long list of heavy hitters. For over 1,800 years since Jesus left, the church interpreted this text with other end-time scriptures to mean that after meeting Jesus in the air as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus would continue with all the saints assembled with Him in the air to earth to complete what we all know as Jesus' second coming. And so for 1,800 years, the church read First Thessalonians 4 as describing Jesus' second and final coming, just as He promised. Okay, are you with me so far? Someone say yes. All good. But then, in the 1800s, a couple of people, most notably a man named John Darby, the father of something called dispensationalism, Darby came up with a very new idea, radical even. According to Darby, after all Christians dead or alive meet Jesus in the air, as we've just read, Jesus does not continue on with them to earth. But instead, Jesus takes all of these Christians back with Him to heaven. And so for the first time, maybe 150 years ago, this new teaching began. This notion that the rapture event in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is something other than Jesus' promised second coming. And when you stop and think about it, that's quite an extraordinary new idea. Suddenly, after 1,800 years, the rapture was not a picture of Jesus' second coming, but according to Darby, a very secret sort of coming, only known and experienced to and by the church, that results in the church being taken out of the world and into heaven. Now, what led Darby, and to be fair, since Darby, many well-respected, heavy-hitting theologians in their own right, what led Darby and his followers to reach this extraordinary conclusion? Well, let's look again at the Scripture before us. What about First Thessalonians 4? Is there anything there that leads to the conclusion that, that Jesus and those raptured with Him into the air will go immediately to heaven and not to earth. Let's state the obvious fact first. Nothing in this Scripture passage before us is directly, explicitly conclusive either way. Nothing. Paul doesn't say. But there may be in context something implied. Given in particular, Paul's choice of words to describe this Christian's meeting Jesus in the air. And given a very well-known custom in the first century world, certainly in the city of Thessalonica. First, Paul's choice of words to describe this event. Paul says that Christians will all be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The term Paul uses to meet in Greek is eis apontesen. Go ahead. Say eis apontesim. Good job. You spoke biblical Greek in church this morning. That's awesome. Now this Greek term, "ace apontesum was almost a technical term, very specialized term that described the custom of, of sending a delegation outside of the city, a group of people outside of the city, to greet and receive a dignitary or important person who is on their way to the town. Now the same term is used in only two other passages in the New Testament. One of those places (laughs) is the book of Acts. See, we just can't get away from Acts. I keep telling you. Do you remember, as Paul finally approaches Rome, as he gets near the city, what does Luke, the author of Acts, tell us happens? i helped you cheat. It's on the screen. Luke writes, The brothers there in Rome had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And there you'll find two, or eight. Upon us. And of course, you remember after meeting Paul, they went with him, escorted him back into Rome. And that was the customary procedure for meeting an important person on their way to the town and escorting them back into the city. The other New Testament passage where we find Ace Upon is in the parable in Matthew 25. That's where we read about the ten virgins. The ten virgins all go out. And they ace upon tason the, bar- the bridegroom. Wait, that sounded kind of funny. <laughs> they ace upon tason. They meet the bridegroom. Okay? And after meeting the bridegroom, they, of course, welcome him back into their village to the wedding feast. And this parable in particular is interesting because it's a picture that Jesus himself gives us of his second coming as a bridegroom coming for his bride, the church. That's why he's even telling the parable. And that picture in Matthew 25 includes the bridegroom coming into the city from whence the welcoming delegation of women came. You'll find the same use of asapontason and same implication of returning into the city many times in the Old Testament. In its Greek translation called the Septuagint, Time this morning limits our review of those passages, but you find them. They're there. And all of this to say, Paul's choice of words here, that technical term of ace apontesim, that may imply, at least, that Jesus will, of course, return to earth with those raptured. And something else may imply the same thing. This Greek and Roman custom was very well established, very well known, especially when persons of high political rank came to town. That's what you would do as a first century Greek or Roman city. The historian Polybius, for example, spoke of the great pomp of such occasions. And author after author described how not only certain officials, but also all the population of a city would all file out of the city to meet important folk whenever they came to visit a city. And I can't resist sharing this one. Josephus, easily the most famous and well-respected first century historian, Josephus tells us of the time when the citizens of Rome went out to meet Vespasian as their new emperor their coming king, as he was coming to Rome. By the way, he was returning to Rome after defeating the Jews in Israel in the same war where his son Titus utterly destroyed God's temple in Jerusalem. Listen to Josephus tell us about what happened when Vespasian, the new king, the coming king, was coming on his way to Rome to officially be declared and to take his rightful throne Forever and ever, since he also said he was divine as Caesar. See if you hear any echoes, at least, in 1 Thessalonians 4. Here's Josephus describing this event of Vespasian's parousia, they would say. Vespasian's coming. Amidst such feelings of universal goodwill, those of higher rank in the city impatient of awaiting him, Vespasian, hastened to a great distance from Rome to be the first to greet him. Nor indeed could any of the rest endure the delay of meeting, but all poured forth in such crowds, for to all it seems simpler and easier to go than to remain." That the very city then, for the first time, experienced with satisfaction the paucity of inhabitants. No one's there. For those who went outnumbered those who remained. But when he, Vespasian, was was reported to be approaching, and those who had gone ahead were telling of the affability of his reception. I had to look up affability. Maybe some of you do too easy and pleasant to speak to, approachable, gentle, and gracious. When they heard that, how He received each welcoming party in that manner, well, the whole remaining population with wives and children, now we've got a county fair, were by now waiting at the roadsides to receive Him. And each group as He passed in their delight at the spectacle and moved By the blandness of his appearance. Blandness in terms of pleasant and soothing and tranquil and confident and unperturbed. Moved by his appearance, they gave vent to all manner of cries, hailing him as benefactor, savior, and only worthy emperor of Rome. The whole city, moreover, was filled like a temple with garlands and incense. So ends Josephus' account of Vespasian coming to Rome. And those first century Thessalonians, the whole Greek and Roman world as well, they knew this custom very, very well. So did Paul. And so Paul is almost certainly drawing a comparison for them between Jesus' second coming and this well-known custom. They're going to hear it. It sounds so familiar to something that is ordinary in their everyday lives. Did you notice that the first to meet Vespasian were those of the highest rank in the city? Do we hear an echo of this custom in 1 Thessalonians 4, where the dead in Christ shall rise first? While, as I've already said, Paul does not explicitly tell us where the raptured Christians will be with the Lord forever, the term ace upon Payson and this well-known custom of the day seems to strongly imply, at least, that a delegation going out to meet a visiting dignitary will return with the one who comes. And since no other explanation is offered of the events in 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives no other explanation after the saints are caught up. We can safely assume that the Thessalonians, at least, would have understood that the Lord would continue His second coming and come on down until He arrived at the final destination of their city or the earth. And so where does this get us? Well, we were considering why it was, or how it was, Darby may have interpreted this passage to mean that Jesus would return to heaven with the raptured Christians. But if anything, it seems the passage implies the opposite. That Jesus will continue and complete His second coming after the rapture and come to earth to rule and to judge the nations. And actually the driving force behind darby's conclusion and you'll see it all over his writings as well as those who have studied him he's trying to figure out he's trying to figure out how the church will be spared what the bible calls the great tribulation a time of unprecedented worldwide difficulty and struggle it's really the goal of the rapture resulting in the church being snatched away into heaven so that Christians won't experience the Great Tribulation, and while I can empathize with that attempt, I've got to point out—I've got to point out to you: take a look. God's plan from Genesis through Revelation is that Christians and the Church persevere through tribulation. That's where our witness is most effective. I mean, the church has been experiencing tribulation, persecution, difficult. We've all been feeling together with the rest of the world the effects of sin for millennia. I mean, how many of you in here, how many of you in here have never been hurt by the effects of living in an imperfect world? See, that's part of God's plan. It's it's fabric almost. We're we're to be in the world, not of it, but in it witnessing the love of God. And just because it may get a whole lot worse, as Scripture indeed seems to indicate, it doesn't necessarily follow, it doesn't necessarily follow that suddenly God will change His plan to we're no longer in the world, but we're out of here. It almost smacks of health and wealth gospel. For me, I... I can't get to where Darby goes because in part I can't fathom why God would snatch the church away, why God would remove his witness from the world, why God would take his salt and light out of the world at a time it will be needed most to witness who he is. I'll come back to that in a minute, but feeling like I need to pause here at least to say this. I I can feel it. I feel like I'm coming down pretty hard on the opinion that the rapture removes the church from the world into heaven. And that's probably because I am. (laughs) But let me say this. Please hear me. Please. My opinion on this, this is not an essential to salvation. Could someone give me an amen to that? It isn't. The Bible does not say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make sure you have your end time stuff straight and you'll be saved, does it? And so no one's opinion on these details, at least, of end times should be an essential, okay? Now, I suspect this community in particular, um, I would suspect many of you hold to Darby's what's called pre-tribulation view, that the church escapes the worst trouble. And if that's your opinion, if that's your opinion, well, honestly, now you're going to have to find another church to go to. (laughs) I'm kidding. Of course. Believe me, I don't, I truly don't feel that way at all. Not one bit. And I hope you don't either. Hey, I could be wrong on this one and Darby could be right. I don't think so, but I could be. And you should know, let me save a few emails. (laughs) You should know our church does not take an official stance on this issue of the rapture. And wisely so, in my opinion. We shouldn't. I would be so against that if anyone tried to put that into our doctrinal statement. This is not an essential to salvation. I expect I'll hear it during our next staff meeting if others on staff feel differently than I do. And I expect I'll hear it from some of you. But you know what? That's okay. We can test each other. That's how these non-essentials, I think, are intended to strengthen us, push us to dig deeper into the Scriptures. All good things. We just can't let it divide us. Please. We can agree to disagree on non-essentials like this one and work all the harder to maintain unity and diversity on non-essentials like the details of the rapture. Okay? My wife, um, my wife Jill asked me an important question last night. Actually, we got into a fight. It was very short-lived, as I snapped something off and left. Typical man response, of which I'm not proud see Adam in Genesis 3 he didn't say anything at least I said something Adam although I'd probably been better if I hadn't she asked me she asked me this she said Todd she said why why are you risking alienating people on a non-essential to salvation great question She loves you guys and doesn't like it much when I risk picking a fight. So I told her, honey, I I just don't love them as much as you do. (laughs) Nah, I love you guys too. Let me try and share a few reasons at least why we need to wrestle with non-essentials too in general, and specifically with this here one regarding the rapture. First reason I've already alluded to. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just the attorney that's still in me. I just love a good fight. <laughs> uh, yes and no. I, you know, I I do. I love a good debate if, going into it, we agree that no matter what, it won't divide us. Now, I'll go there with you. It, it's like a marriage. You know, I... I only remember two or three things that the pastor said to us during our whole premarital counseling, Jill and I. And one was this. He said, no matter what, I want you right now to agree and pledge to each other that no matter what happens in your marriage, no matter good times, bad times, no matter what happens, don't you ever, ever use the word divorce. Never even speak it, he said great advice that I'm happy to say we've followed for almost 20 years now. So let's debate non-essentials, but let's agree to never divide over them, please. And wrestling over non-essentials can be such a strength and a blessing. Wrestling with non-essentials pushes us into Scripture. It's a good thing. It pushes us. To our knees before an almighty, all-knowing God to help guide us. That's a good thing. And if ultimately we can't agree, as painful as that is for many of us, I don't like it when people disagree with me either. Well, in the long term, I think that tension, that pain is worth it. In the long term... Spirited debate strengthens the church when we push each other deeper into scripture and lower on our knees before God. The pain of disagreement on non essentials, in my opinion, is worth the long term benefit, I think, in keeping our nose in the Bible and our knees on the ground, just like iron sharpens iron in the biblical image of marriage. Second, concern I have with a rapture church to heaven, in particular is that it risks discouraging our task as believers. Or it might. You ask, how so? Well, if I believe we're all going to go to heaven before literally all hell breaks loose on earth, I might be tempted to become less involved in helping to bring about a godly change in what's going on in the world. I mean, if it's all going to be ruined, it's all going to be ruined. If the church isn't even going to be around... When it really gets tough, well, then why work so hard to bring around godly change in the world? Instead, we'll just focus only on saving souls and not on making a real difference and impact for Christ in the beautiful, breathtaking world and creation that God gave us to care for. And I worry about that. Jill likes to do puzzles, jigsaw puzzles. You'll find her often lost in a world of her own, hunched over a table, hours slipping by, forsaking food and rest. You didn't know you were going to be such a big part of the sermon. I'm going to to have another fight. Pouring her heart and soul, this amazing, beautiful woman, into putting this puzzle together. You've never seen such focus. And really, that's a great metaphor for the life and witness of the church. We're being used by God to put an incredibly difficult puzzle together. Only our puzzle is to be the very kingdom of God in the world and to influence the world to come in line with God's heavenly kingdom as we prepare for Jesus' coming as best we can. So help us, God. But I have to tell you, I hate jigsaw puzzles. And one of the reasons I don't like them is because I knew as soon as I'm done, the whole thing's going to be destroyed right back into the box. Ah, it, just, it breaks my heart. So what are do you doing? Even when she's done, I see all the work she's put into it. Literally, she put the last piece in, and then her mom came over with a new puzzle. And they started unloading the puzzle, and I said, Well, what are you going to do with the one you just finished? We're going to take it apart. I said, Are you kidding me? You just spent ten days of your life putting that together. Knowing it's going to be destroyed just discourages me from putting it, you know, putting it together. See, but the puzzle God is using us to help build in the world is meant to last. We leave a legacy of faithfulness behind us that God will continue to use for good long after we're dead. That's God's plan for the church, even through the great tribulation. In my opinion, especially through the roughest times. And a concern I have with a raptured church to heaven is that it might have the same effect today on the church as a real jigsaw puzzle has on me. Especially when the going gets tough. Especially when it gets really hard. Like when a piece is missing. See, our perseverance in pain and through pain and leaning into pain is crucial to our witness. And a promise of one day being zapped out of it while the others who don't know the Lord and who God desperately loves too... Well, they're just left behind to fend for themselves? Too bad for you? Now I know, Judgment Day is the last day before all hope is gone for those not in Christ. But that day is not the Great Tribulation. Through the great tribulation is where the church can help the most to witness the love of God and salvation in Jesus' name. If we're all gone, who's going to tell those that God cherishes, who's going to tell them and show them Jesus? That's God's role for us. Last, I guess I've alluded to this one as well. My friends, it is so important that we handle... Scripture with great respect and care. We need to know what's in the book and what's in, and what's not in it. Even on non-essentials. Because even if something is non-essential to salvation, it may nevertheless be important in ways we just don't understand or fathom. Otherwise, God wouldn't put it in His book. There's nothing unimportant in here. And my concern with a raptured church-to-heaven reading of 1 Thessalonians 4, oh, be careful, it's just not necessarily in there. So be very careful of teaching that it necessarily is. And I'll own this too. A raptured church-back-to-earth reading of 1 Thessalonians 4 is not necessarily in there either I hope I left some room at least this morning if you disagree with me for you to breathe and we can agree to disagree on that if necessary I hope I haven't taught you that a church back to earth is necessarily in first Thessalonians 4 either in my opinion best contextual evidence points there but I can't be absolutely sure See, we can have strong opinions on these things, but they also at the same time need to remain humble on non-essentials. And I'll confess to you right now, that is a tough task for me and personally. Strong opinions and humility, maybe for some of you too. And I'm sorry, I'm truly sorry if in my passion to share an opinion, a lack of humility comes through in the strength of my conviction on this issue. So let me finish this way. I'll conclude this way. In in my humble opinion, a best reading of this passage, given the context of Scripture and context of the first century world in which it was written and first heard, is that the church will not be raptured away to heaven. But Christians dead or alive who meet Jesus in the air will continue back with Him to earth and, yes, indeed, be with the Lord forever. If your opinion is different, hey, I'd be happy to talk about it with you and maybe we can even strengthen each other by pushing each other deeper into the text and um, keeping each other on our knees before our amazing God. Amen? And just remember, when you email me this week, my email address is dbaity at West <laughs> dot com. My goodness, whatever will we talk about next week on End Times? I don't know, maybe bowls and trumpets and seals on scrolls? Maybe the Antichrist? Maybe the Millennium? Maybe we'll jump back into the Book of Acts. No, I don't know. Hope you come back and see. Bring a friend. Hey, shoot, bring two. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your amazing word, which oftentimes invites us, urges us, calls to us to haggah, to dig into it, to meditate on it, to spend time in it. Maybe that's why, Father. On so many non-essentials, it seems, Christians have a hard time agreeing to the nth detail. Maybe that's your way of inviting us to come and camp in and aga in your Word and keeping us close to Scripture and on our knees before you. And, oh, Father, may it work that way and not in a way that our pride gets in the way where we end up angry and divided and leaving the unity and diversity that you command and so crave. We love you. And it's in Jesus, the Messiah's name, the one who will come again, that we all pray. And all God's people said, Amen.